First Peter chapter four. Praise team, you did a great job this morning. We appreciate that. And uh, also, let me be one of the first to tell you happy Thanksgiving. It's on its way. Isn't it hard to believe it's just right here? I mean, Christmas is, well, it's about time to start listening to Christmas music, isn't it? Okay. First Peter chapter four. It's funny with Christmas music, I only will let myself listen to that from like the day before Thanksgiving on. I still have not. I, I've gone into the why and different things and I hear all the music and I'm like, oh, I kind of ignore that. I can't. Because it just drags on too long. You know, you gotta wait till, till at least Thanksgiving. Okay, First Peter chapter four. This morning we're talking about a hero's expectations or a hero's expectation. All heroes know that there are certain expectations that come from being a hero. The superheroes expect to face superhuman challenges. They expect to have, have to rise above evil. They even expect suffering from being wrongly accused and at times suffering for what is right. The Christian heroes of the first century also had to face certain expectations, namely expectations of suffering and persecution. Now, let me remind you, as the video did just a moment ago, that Peter, in this letter, is addressing Christians who have been wrongly accused and who are being persecuted for what they believe. Now, I know I mentioned this several weeks ago, but one thing I want you to understand as it relates to this letter that's being written is in about the same time this letter comes out, the emperor Nero has come and basically has set fire to Rome. The reason he does that is because he wants to rebuild Rome. He wants to make it a more marvelous city. And so what he's done is he's gone out and he's literally burned Rome and there were those trying to put the fire out and they said that Rome literally burned for nine days and, and, and there were those trying to put it out and trying to go back to their, their homes and their stores to put out the fire, but he, he refused to let them back in. He even had some of his soldiers continue the fires on for nine days. At the end of it, needless to say, public opinion of Nero was not very good. And so what he did is he turned and blamed the Christians. He said, basically, they're the ones who've done this. And there you have some of the most, uh, some of the, 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 the craziest ways of persecuting people that's ever been known to man. And, and some of the things that Nero did to Christians and what other people did to Christians, I mean, it was literally persecution of the worst kind. And Nero led the charge, all based on false accusations. Basically, they were misunderstood. And Peter, about the same time all this takes place, he writes this letter. Now, as a result of all the public opinion that has gone that was negative towards Nero, now it's placed upon the Christian community. As a result of that, Peter and Paul will be executed based on what Nero did. Public opinion turned on, on the whole Christian community. So, so look at the introduction here. Suffering is in general part of the human condition. And as Christians, it, come, it can come at us from many different outlets. It can come at us from consequences, persecution, attach, uh, attacks from the enemy, and even testing from God. In the text today, Peter is giving us insight in how to deal with suffering as believers in Christ. Namely, the suffering that comes not only from persecution, but just living out life, misunderstandings, mistreatment. And so that's what he's giving us here today. He's, he's done a lot of this all through this letter. But today, he's coming at it from a little different angle. Angle, angle excuse me. So look on your outline. 
Suffering should be expected. When it comes to living in this life, when it comes to just being merely a Christian, it should be expected. And Peter says that. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. It says, beloved. Uh, it could say those who are dearly loved. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. He's basically saying, don't be surprised if, if something happens to you. And, and, and when you look at the setting, especially what I just described to you about what Nero has done and, and public opinion of Christians has gone down and there's so many negative things that surround it, it's almost like Peter saying, what do you expect when things like this are going on? But not only can this word speak to, to those who, to, who were around 2,000 years ago, it can speak to us today. And he's saying, listen, don't be surprised by these things. It's obvious that Peter's audience was shocked that they were being persecuted. I've heard many who have come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And, and here's the misconception that they believed. They thought that when they came to Christ, life would get easier. They thought that, that, that God would keep them from being victims of suffering and evil. Yet, this is not what the Bible writers wrote. And it's not what Jesus even said. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy, yes, and all, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It will come. If you're seeking to follow Christ and it's displayed before men, you will suffer persecution. In 1 John chapter 3, he says, do not marvel if the world hates you. I mean, that's strong language, but that's what's being said here. So, so there's several things I want to point out about this whole idea of the expectation of suffering. First of all, suffering should be expected. It's not intended to be perplexing, but a proposal. Now think of this. Suffering and persecution can be an invitation to identify with Christ. Jesus once said this, take, take up your cross and what? Follow me. When he says follow me, it's, it's not only following him in his ways, it's also a point of identification because when it comes to our life, our lives should identify with Christ and his cross. And guess what took place on the cross? There was suffering that came with that territory, and, and it reaches our lives. John chapter 15, look here on the screen. Jesus said to his disciple, disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. He's basically saying you're in good company. You, you're identifying with me at that point. And, and so when you think of suffering, it's not something that should perplex us. It's something that we should see as an invitation to identify with Christ. Secondly, suffering should be expected. It's, it's not intended to be strange, but a strategy. God, through our suffering, has a plan. He has a strategy. Some of you have, have lived through suffering, whether it's what has been done to you uh, through mis mistreatment or persecution or different things that you've dealt with inwardly in your soul and uh, just going through the darkness of the times. Whatever it may be, I think there's times in which we are wondering, this is just so strange that this has hit in my life, but it's not, shouldn't be strange. It should be seen as a plan and a purpose that God can use in your life. And so some people will tell you that if you're suffering, it is because you lack faith. I've literally heard people say that. Well, if you had a little more faith, it wouldn't be so bad. I, I've heard that from people's mouth, from pastor's mouths. 
Some people would say, well, if you're suffering, it's because uh, you're living in sin. And, 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 and that could be the truth, but not necessarily. Suffering comes at us from so many different outlets. While this may be true at times, it's not always true. Listen to this. It is possible to suffer and be in the center of God's will while doing that suffering. Look at chapter four again. Look at verse 19. I'm gonna skip to the last verse we're gonna look at here. It says, therefore, let those who suffer, what? According to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Now think about that. He's saying this, those who suffer how? According to the will of God. You mean to tell me sometimes it's the will of God that I suffer? What kind of God would do that to someone? And y'all, that's where many people turn their back from the faith, on the faith, turn their back from Christ because all of a sudden they're going through life. They've received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're going through life and all of a sudden this hits them in their life and this hits them and this hits them and they're shocked, they're perplexed. They don't realize that God can do something wonderful with what they're faced with. Now, I want you to think of this. I want you to hold your place here and turn to Matthew chapter five. Jesus had something to say about this whole idea of persecution. Now, as you turn there, I want you to listen to this because this is one of the most important things I'm going to say because early on when I was teaching out of this, this book, there was a bit of misunderstanding. Here's what we need to understand. This does not mean, verse 19, what we just read, does not mean that God takes pleasure in our suffering, okay? I think some people have, have thought, well, God seems to take pleasure in this. That's not the case. It means that God sees potential in our suffering. It's not the whole idea that God's sitting there and he's taking great pleasure in what you're going through. And you're sitting there and you're like, God, you're messing with me now. Why would you allow this to happen? And he's not sitting there taking pleasure in this. He's sitting there because he sees the potential that can come into our lives When suffering, persecution, mistreatment, when those things come in. It also means that our suffering, listen, is the natural result of us turning from the ways of the world and turning to follow Jesus and his ways. Now, the greatest example of this is found in Matthew chapter five. In Matthew chapter five, you have the beginning of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And so in in Matthew chapter five, look at verse one. And seeing the multitude, Jesus went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying. So it wasn't just the disciples there, it was the multitudes who were gathered around him. And here's how he began that very important sermon. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Now, what's interesting about these verses here is, is the fact that there's, 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 it's not just some example of, of, of things just happening that he's making all these statements. There's a progression that is going on here, okay? Listen to what John MacArthur writes, or look here on the screen about this. The Beatitudes are progressive, not random in the order they are presented. 
Each beatitude leads to the next in logical succession. Being poor in spirit reflects the right attitude that we should have concerning our sinful nature. Now, which should lead us to mourn, to be meek and gentle, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be merciful, pure in heart, and having a peacemaking spirit. Now think of this. A Christian who has all these qualities will be so far above the level of this world that his or her life will rebuke the world, which will bring persecution and suffering from the world. Y'all, that is so true. How many of you have ever just lived out God's ways in your life? You just, you just wanted God's love to come from you. You just, you just wanted to live what he's called you to live. You, you stuck by his word. You've held his truth up to be something that you're going to build your life upon. And you show up at work and you try to live this out. Or you show up in the world and you try to live it out. And the world doesn't appreciate it one bit. Have you ever noticed how that happens? Do you know why that's the case? Because this process of the beatitude is taking place in your life in such a way that when people observe your life, they feel rebuked as a result of it. You ever been there? That, that's when you know you're on to something. <laughs> Not that you're going around telling everybody and judging everybody, but just living out the Christian life, living out God's truth, living out his ways will cause other people to look on and they will be rebuked by that. And as a result, they will begin to persecute. Look at verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revel and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. If you're out there living the truth of God's word, guess what? To bring you down, they will accuse you falsely. They will speak true, they will speak things that are made up to bring you down. Just so they can feel better about themselves. Because you're living up here, and they don't want you living above them. They want you down there where they are. And if they can speak it and bring you down and persecute you and mistreat you and accuse you falsely, they will do it. Y'all, that that happens. That's what went on in the first century. And then it goes on, rejoice in verse 12. And be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. So, so, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Basically, Jesus is saying, you're in good company when it comes to these things. But think of this. God's strategy for allowing suffering to touch our life is to enable us to be salt in an impure world and to be light in a dark world. Look at what he says in verse 13 of Matthew 5. You are to be salt of the earth. That means something that, that influences, something that when it is seen, it, 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 it causes something to happen. That is what our lives need to be about. And then he says, you are the light of the world. And then in verse 16, let your light so shine before men. You live out what God has called you to live out. Live out the Beatitudes. Let that go before men. He said, let it be before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, let me ask you this. When they start to see all that, is the first thing on their mind in a sick, lost world to glorify God? No. You know what they become? Many times they become blasphemous. Many times they look on and they don't. But guess what? Even in that... Listen, God is still being glorified. Even in that, God is glorified because it's your life that is sold out to him. And, and that brings glory to him even when others look on and they want to persecute it and they want to bring suffering as a result. God is basically saying he is applauding that attempt to live for him at that point. Now, 
Turn back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be there for a little while. Now, a life that points people to Jesus, listen, must get the attention of the people. Did you know that? If you're going to help lead people to Christ, if you're going to be a witness for Christ, your life must get the attention of other people. That's the reason he says to be, law, to be salt and to be light. And it's so clear. Now, next, suffering should be expected. It's not intended to be catastrophic, but character building. How many of you ever seen suffering build character in you? Oh, yeah. I guarantee you the greatest moments in which growth came to your life did not come in the, the happiest of times. It didn't come when things were comfortable and good. No, the greatest growth I guarantee that you ever seen in your life came by way of some type of suffering. Now, the Bible says in Romans chapter five, it basically says this is true, that we also glory in tribulations. That means those things that bring suffering, those things that try us, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance what? Character and character hope. James chapter one, my brother, count it all joy when you're following the various trials. When it says various trials, all kinds of flavors of trials, all kinds of flavors of suffering. We said, count it all joy. How many of you, that's what you do automatically. Suffering comes in your life, count it all joy. Amen, praise God. No, we don't do that, do we? I mean, it would be ideal, but he's saying, yeah, let that be your perspective. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And who, who needs a little patience in here? I do, especially as you've heard when I drive. But anyway, uh, now, in God's hands, our suffering can produce the greatest blessings. Charles Spurgeon once said this, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. They bring up rare pearls. Something of great value happens in a person. Chuck Swindoll writes this concerning suffering through trials. If we view life as a schoolroom and God as the instructor, it should come as no surprise when we encounter pop quizzes and periodic examinations. Maturity in the Christian life is measured by our ability to withstand the test, you could say the trials that come our way without having them shake our foundation or throw us into an emotional tailspin. These things can be character building. These things can be life altering. Suffering, look on your outline again. Let's review that part. Suffering should be expected. It's not intended to be perplexing, but a, pr a proposal. It's basically God inviting you into a great work he's about to do in and through your life. Second of all, it's not a strategy. To, it's not intended to be strange, but a strategy. God has a plan and a purpose behind it, and you can trust him with it. Job, you ever read the story of Job? You can't imagine the suffering this man went through. God took everything away but a wife that sat there and said, well, won't you just curse God and take your own life? That's what she was saying over and over again. And, that near, at the end, and by the way, his friends weren't any better. Did you read what they said? And then at the very end, he said, though he slay me, I will still trust him. You know why? Because he said there was a plan. There had to be a purpose. God wouldn't put me through all this. Now, now, did he think that way all the way through it? No, he had times where he was crying out to God. There were times in which he said, why God? There were times in which he said, almost to the point, how dare you, God? But in the end, where did it lead? Though he slay me, I shall trust him. Next, it is intended to 
not intended to be catastrophic, but character, character building. Listen, when suffering, when mistreatment, when those things come into our lives, here's what you need to understand. God is up to something. He's up to something. But many times, you know what we want to do? We want to get as far away from the plant. We want to get as far away from it as possible. We want it to go, we want it to go away as soon as possible. And that's a, a natural human reaction. But guess what? Sometimes it's not the best reaction. We got to trust God that he's doing something. Next, suffering can bring us closer to God. The whole idea of participation, suffering with him. Now, this is very interesting in the way Peter sets this up. But, the, but think of this. The people of the world hate the name of Jesus Christ. How many of you picked up on that? They hate him. Uh, they, they don't want to hear about him. It's interesting that, it's funny, God's okay, but don't you mention Jesus. If you want to have a prayer, it's okay, leave Jesus out of this. You can call on God, leave Jesus out. Listen, you know why they hate Jesus? Because he was the revelation of God. He was the epitome of God. He was the only way we know God truly and, and the truth of God about, about the truth of God was through Jesus Christ. And so when they say God's okay, they can pretty much make up whatever they want to about God at that point. But when Jesus is attached, there's definitive things about who God is that has been revealed. And so what happens many times is, and I've even been told this. Now, now when you pray, be sensitive to who's out there. Really? <laughs> even here in Cleveland County. But Jesus is always mentioned, trust me. But anyway, here, listen to this. They hate who Jesus is. They hate what he said. They hate what he did. Now, does that make any logical sense? Here's the story of Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. That Jesus would come to this world. He would see the afflictions and the misery of men. And he would look upon them and he would say, you know something? You're right, God. I, I need to follow through. There's a plan that you have to bring salvation to them. God, I love them so much. I'm gonna lay down my life for them. And then you're going to raise me back up and there is going to be a path that will lead them from their afflictions and from their misery to, to a place called heaven that we're going to prepare for them. Y'all, that's what he said. That's what he did. And yet they hate him. Does that even make sense to you? You know what that tells me? That it's true and the enemy doesn't like it and he's raising up a force against the greatest message ever told. That's amazing to me. I look at that and I'm thinking, this makes no sense. Here's what the bottom line is. No one wants to be told what to do. No one wants to be accountable to something. When Jesus came on the scene, he revealed the true God. That's the reason they don't like him. So, so here's what we need to understand. When we identify with him or talk of him and the response is hatred, they don't necessarily hate us. They hate the Christ in us. They're not necessarily persecuting us. They persecute Christ in us. Persecution is a sign that we are doing what God desires us to do. And so look at verse 13 of chapter four. Look, look what it says. He goes on, he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. The word partake there literally means to participate, that you are participating in his suffering. And by the way, let's get this straight. Who are they really persecuting? Him, through us. 
So many times we take it so personally. Woe is me. I can't believe Jesus, they don't like you. As a result of them not liking you, they sure hate me too. And we mope about it. Did you know that the, the, the first century Christians didn't, that wasn't their attitude about being persecuted? They counted it all joy. They saw it as a sign they were doing something right. They saw it as, as something in which it was a privilege and an honor to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. Boy, it's amazing how 2,000 years, I mean, it's just amazing. Now, now, now listen, nothing moves us closer to Christ than when we participate with him in suffering. How, how many of you have ever done the right thing in the face of opposition and you came through it and you came out on the other side and you felt closer to God than you ever felt in your life? I don't know about you, but I've had those quiet times in which God speaks to my heart and it's just so real. It's just so, I mean, it's, you ever had those moments where it's like, wow, he is addressing something in my life right here. This is something that I've had those moments. But boy, when you go out there and you take a stand for Christ and you, you do what's right and, and the, the persecution and the mistreatment and all those things that come through on the other side of it, y'all, you can't be closer to Christ than during those times. And, and that's what you see played out many times. Next, suffering can bring us closer to God uh, by exaltation, celebrating with him. Listen, it is possible to experience joy and victory in the midst of suffering. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake, that you're participating in Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, what does all that mean? Well, when he says when his glory is revealed. Now, anytime glory is revealed in scripture, it's not just a thing that brings glory to God. It's also a sign of victory. It's victory, okay? So, so, so this can be a twofold meaning for us today. Listen, we can sense victory in the moment of our suffering. You ever sense victory in the moment of your suffering when you have the perspective that the scriptures has about it? Yeah, it can take place. But secondly, we will have victory at the moment Jesus returns. And verse 13 seems to be an implication that when he returns, his glory will be revealed and we will be revealed with him. So we, don't, we not only identify with him in his suffering, but guess what we're gonna soon identify with him in? His glory, his glory. Now listen, it's all for the glory of God. Everything that we do, everything, we're not worthy of any glory. But the Bible says that we will not only share in his suffering, we will share in his glory because listen, the glory that we'll share in is, is what he has provided in the first place. It's not something we generated on ourselves. Listen, if we face persecution and suffering with the right perspective and we go in it courageously, it's nothing that we've done in and of ourselves. It's, some, it's a work he's done in and through us. And so as a result, when there's any glory to go out, we're gonna share with that in, in, in him, but he's the one that made it all possible. Now, Let's keep look, thinking about this. If we become embittered at life and the pain and suffering it deals us, we are not preparing to rejoice at the revelation of Christ's glory. Here's the, here's the challenge. Keep on rejoicing now while suffering in order that we may rejoice in exaltation of the revelation and the return of his glory. Next, suffering can bring us closer to God by impartation. That's experiencing him. Now, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you really experienced God in your life? When was it? A lot of times we'll say, hey, uh, 
What's going on in your life? Or have you experienced Christ? A lot of times, and, and I understand this, we'll go back to our salvation experience. I've heard people who are in their 30s ask, oh, what's going on? Well, let me just tell you, God saved me when I was eight years old. And man, it was just, no, okay, eight years old, that's great. But what's he doing now? What's happening right now? How are you seeing the visible presence of God being lived out in your own life right now? Look at, look at verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Now that's very interesting. Someone has rightly said this, and I think this is what this verse is saying. In great suffering on earth, there is great support from heaven. That's pretty cool when you think about it. Think, listen to it again. In great suffering on earth, there is great support from heaven. If you look at verse 14 again, it says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is a picture of the presence of God that is so powerful that it enables you to overcome the most difficult of suffering and persecution or the trials or whatever it may be. Now think about it, y'all. When it talks about the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you, it's the same terminology that we find in the Old Testament when the Shekinah glory would fall from heaven in the Holy of Holies. It's the same picture. And it rests upon you. Wow. You mean the Shekinah glory of God can literally rest upon? Listen, that's nothing. The Holy Spirit is in you anyway. And so what happens is, is the true sense of who God is and your experience that you can have in him, it's all right there. That's your kind of glory. It rests upon you. John Piper writes this. I believe 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 promises that in the, greatest, that in the hour of greatest trial or suffering, God comes to his children to give them courage and faith when they did not know, which they did not know they were capable of. I've seen that so many times. Corey Tim Boone tells how she worried as a girl. Now, you remember Corey Tim Boone? She was a part of uh, Nazi Germany coming in and trying to extinguish the Jewish people. Corey Tim Boone, her family was involved in that. She was in concentration camps and all that. But she could almost see that it was rising up, the, the persecution that was coming. Corey Tim Boone tells how she worried as a girl whether she would be able to stand against the Germans if she was threatened. She felt so weak when she thought about what might happen. Her father gave her a great illustration to remember. He said this, when you were going to take a journey on a train, did I give you your ticket three weeks early or just as you're about to get on the train? She answered, as I get on the train or as I got on the train. Her father then responded, so God will give you the special strength you need to be strong in the face of suffering and even in death just when you need it, not before. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever seen where people had a dynamic faith and they suffered for Jesus to the point that they knew they were about to die? and they still went on proclaiming Christ, never denying him? Have you ever looked upon that and asked yourself this question? I wonder if I could ever do that. Have you ever asked yourself that? I have. I mean, I've read the stories of the martyrs. I've read the stories of Peter and Paul and all these great people of God. And, and you sit there and you put, your, you put yourself there and you think, could I ever do that? 
according to what we read here, according to what Corey Tim Boone and so many other people have said, and, and even the people that I guarantee when we get to heaven, how many of you, when you get to heaven, you wouldn't mind interviewing a martyr? Just going up to them and saying, tell me how that went down. How did it happen? I guarantee you're going to hear something like this. First of all, I had no idea I was capable of doing what I did. I had no idea that, that I would have the peace that I had going into that. I never knew that as they were about to take my life that, that I would be able to, to have a peace and a comfort that would surpass all understanding. And I, I, I tell you, I, I had no idea, but man, I tell you, I sensed the presence of God, his Shekinah glory, uh, just the presence of God rested upon me during that time. I tell you, it was amazing. I guarantee you, you interview someone who was a martyr for Christ, that is what you're gonna hear because that's what we read in scripture a lot. He's there. Next, suffering can bring us closer to God, exaltation, glorifying him. Look at verse 14 again. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of God, of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. That means those who are looking on, uh, those who are being critical, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. You're talking about two extremes. The extremes of glorifying someone and blaspheming him. Uh, now, right quick, I think I have time. Turn to Acts chapter six. Acts chapter six. As you turn there, listen to this. Peter's overall meaning is that when we suffer rejection because of our stand for Christ, something of the Lord will be seen through our lives. Even if others reject God and us, this is clearly seen in the story of Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, okay? In Acts chapter six, uh, what you find here is that they're basically choosing seven men to help the apostles. Now, some people would say that these men uh, were what we've come to know as deacons. They, I've heard people say that. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm telling you, we got one very impressive deacon if this is the case in Stephen. I want you to look at verse eight. It says, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of freedmen, which comes from these groups here, disputing with Stephen, verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. That's pretty impressive. What are you saying up here in the preceding verse? People of high intellect, people of great philosophical minds. <laughs> they couldn't hang with him because the spirit was upon him. Verse 11, then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. You see, they made up things. They couldn't find anything wrong with what he was saying. And so they just started making up stuff. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. They come upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Now, the council would be the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For, for we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth, by the way, who is he? The one who came, who loved you enough to give his life for you, to provide a way to heaven? That Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. That means he's gonna start messing with our traditions. Goes on and says, and all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face, listen, as the face of an angel. He was lit up. I mean, these are people who blasphemous, hated him, coming out, wanted him dead, as we're getting ready to find out. And yet they could not deny, listen, that the presence of God was on him. 
You're talking about deception, and they still wanted to kill him. I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. It goes on in chapter seven and it talks about all the things he's, he's preaching to him. He's, it comes to, and then comes to chapter seven, verse 51. And here's what he says. You stiff, this is Stephen. You stiff necked people and uncircumcision in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Boy, you're talking about some strong talk. Which, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that's Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That means they were furious and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When he said the Son of Man, do you think they knew who he was talking about? If they ever hung out with Jesus at any point, they knew he, that was his favorite title for himself. They knew he was talking about Jesus. Then they cried out with a loud voice, verse 15, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You know what that tells us? Saul was in, it appears, Saul was in authority as to what was happening there. This Saul became who? Paul, the apostle. And so all this is going down. And then it says, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I like the way the Bible says someone dies. It doesn't say he died, he passed, he expired. I mean, I, I heard a, a funeral director one time, and, and, and you know, when you're in the business, I understand you kind of lose the sensitivity, but yes, I'm sorry to see that he expired. I mean, like he's a jug of milk or something? Give me a break. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm like, what? But I love the way the scripture says it. He fell asleep. And y'all, that's what believers in Christ do. We fall asleep. And on the other side, there's something marvelous and great and the whole identified. So it's a picture. Listen, all this is a picture of exalting God, bringing him glory in the midst of suffering. Listen, we are never closer to God than when we suffer for his cause. Turn back to 1 Peter. We're almost, I gotta hurry. Look at your outline. Suffering should lead us to self-examination. Peter now is, is about to ask us to take a closer look at our suffering. He's talked about the potential of our suffering. He's talked about all these great things that suffering can do. But then he, it's almost like he punts and he says, okay, now let's evaluate where you personally are, okay? And he says this, and look at your first one there on your outline. Is this my suffering due to sin in my life? Is the reason I'm going through what I'm going through because of me or because something's out there coming after me? Look at verse 15. It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters, Basically, what he's saying, he's saying, listen, if you've sinned and you're suffering, that's natural recourse. <laughs> what you sow, you're going to reap. 
There's consequences associated with that. So here's what you need to do. If that's the case with you, what you need to do is you need to repent of your sins. You need to get right with God that he can place you on a path once again in which you can glorify him in your suffering. Next, I gotta hurry. More introspection. How can I glorify God in my suffering? Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Don't be ashamed. You just glorify him. You stand with him. Listen to this. In Acts chapter five, one of my favorite stories in scripture, when Peter and John were beaten, and by the way, they were beaten severely, okay? 39 lashes is what we can tell. By the Sanhedrin, they brought them in. They did this because they were preaching Christ. The Bible says as they were released, listen to this, they went rejoicing, Peter and John, this Peter who wrote this, He's lived out. He's not just giving you rhetoric. He's not just giving you words. The man lived what he's uh, writing here. But listen to this. Peter and John went away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. It's amazing when you think about it. Next, third introspective question. How can I consider the depth of my sin and the eternal perspective of my current feelings? Verses 17 and 18. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not know, who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, here's what he's saying. He's going back. He's pulling something from the Old Testament. And he basically, here's what he says. When God began to do a work of judgment, he didn't just jump on the sinners. Do you know where it always started? With his own people. It always started with his own people. I'm gonna give you a little homework. This is recorded in Ezekiel 9, Jeremiah 25, and Malachi chapter three. It always began with his people, and then he began to move outward. And he's basically saying there's going to come a time. Paul told the Corinthians that they needed to judge their own lives by dealing with their sins so that they would not be condemned along with the rest of the world. God's purifying process must begin and has begun with his people before his judgment falls on the world. And that is what's being taught here. So in a time of suffering and trials, we need to examine ourselves and the depth of our sin in light of eternity and submit to God's refining process. Now, let's keep moving. Next, suffering can teach us much about potential. First of all, God's potential. Let me say this, as I said it earlier. God does not take pleasure in our suffering, but he does see the great potential of our suffering. He sees potential. Ruth's husband, you remember Ruth in the Old Testament? If her husband had not had died, do you think that was a tough time in her life? Oh yeah, her and her mother-in-law were wandering around aimlessly, not, not knowing what, what the future would hold. But listen to this. If she, he had not had died, there would not have been the story of Boaz who was the kinsman redeemer. We wouldn't have had that promise sitting right there in scripture. Listen, if, if Joseph was not sold into slavery by his brothers and falsely accused and went to prison, he would not have been the protector of his people. If David was not mistreated by King Saul, we would not have many of the Psalms that minister to us today. With God, our suffering has great potential and it can minister to others. Look at verse 19. I gotta hurry. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The word commit there could also be entrust. Paul told Timothy, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard 
what I have entrusted or committed to him until that day. That means Paul put his full trust in Christ. Jesus' last words on the cross, similar. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit. Did he put it in good hands? Most definitely. Verse 19, we find the only time in the New Testament God is called the creator. He's implied that he's creator. This is the only time he's actually called creator. If God created the universe by his power, then he's able to guard the promises that we are claiming and that we are entrusting him to, to come forth with. Can he be trusted? Oh yeah, he created it all. So this leads to our potential. You demonstrate your trust by continuing to do what is right when you suffer. That's what verse 17, 19 says. You don't plot revenge on those who have wronged you. You pray that God will save them and know that if he doesn't, he will judge them and exonerate you. That will take place. So here we go. When we face suffering, our lives have great potential. We can have courage like we've never had. We can have blessings like we've never experienced. We can give love and forgiveness like we've never given. All of these were demonstrated by Christ when he faced death on our behalf. So here's the application. As Christians, we should expect suffering. More than that, by God's power, we can rejoice in our suffering if we see the result God is accomplishing, that there's a purpose, that there's a plan. When suffering comes into our lives, we should examine ourselves more deeply and entrust ourselves to God more fully, knowing that we are in his perfect will. You see, it's not that God takes pleasure in your suffering. It's the fact that he sees great potential in your suffering. And that's what Peter was trying to tell them. I know you think God's abandoned you. I know you probably thought that once you came to know Christ, everything would be easy. He said, no, not necessarily. Expect it to come. But God has great potential in it. No matter what you're facing, would you stand to your feet? Father, we just thank you again for your word this morning. Thank you for the challenge that we've uh, had through, through Peter. Father, if there's someone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, I pray today would be a day in which they would consider giving their life to you. Father, if there are Christians here who are here today and maybe they've been suffering with something for some time now and, and it's nothing that they've done in and of themselves. It's just something that has happened to them, whether it's health or whether it's a, a wayward child or uh, whatever it may be, they're just hurting right now. Lord, help them to realize that, that, that there's, there's something behind all this, that you can, you, can, you can glorify yourself through this. Father, maybe there's someone here today who's being mistreated at work or at school or wherever they find themselves, and they don't know what to do. They, they're trying so hard not to be angry. They're just trying so hard to live out the truth. Father, I pray that you'll help them to sense your presence and that this has been an encouragement to them. Father, we thank you for what you're gonna do. In Jesus' name, we're getting ready to sing a hymn of